Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of the Classroom Matters podcast with me, your host, Christy Hool, and I am excited to have an engineer on the show with us today. You know, she's many, many things. An engineer is one of the many talents that my guest has. Uh, so today we will be talking with Marsha Tuft about the world of STEM, the world of problem solving, the world of women in STEM. So we have a lot to cover with Marsha today. Marsha, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much for inviting me to be on your podcast. It's near and dear to my heart, the things that you cover. Well, we, you know, Marsha and I were talking prior to us starting the episode, and there are so many things that I love that you're doing. And so I know that you love your dogs, you love your butterflies, you've got an extensive background of engineering, you are a young adult author, you've got these wonderful books out there, you are a problem solver. You are just so many wonderful things that I think can not only help the folks listening to our podcast, such as teachers, parents, administrators. We have some students that listen to our podcast, but I think that really a lot of the things that you're doing are just great for anyone, whether you're in that role or not, to really understand and learn the the process of things. So I'm excited to have this conversation with you today. And I would love for you to start just by telling our listeners a little bit about your background and some of the things that you've really been excited and passionate about over the last couple of years. Well, as, as you've mentioned, my background is engineering. I've got degrees in mechanical, aerospace, and materials. So I, I finished my PhD um, at University of Dayton while working at GE Aviation full-time. Um, I also did my master's in aerospace while working for GE Aviation. Um, I was also fortunate, um, GE has this wonderful program called the Advanced Courses in Engineering, where you do some in-plant courses with the local experts, And you get some advanced standing credit with the college, and then they pay full tuition and books. And I ended up with a three-year assignment managing the advanced courses after I was at GE a few years. And during that stint, we just had a student feedback survey that said, you know, the instructors don't know how to teach, the homework assignments are out of date and all that. And I had the opportunity to take this intensive instructor development course with Ted Fowler and Glenn Markle from UC Teachers College. And that's when I learned about education, how how to teach. And the light bulbs went out and it's like, man, yes, college professors don't have to have a teaching degree. It would have been so much easier if I knew more about how to teach and how to learn going into college because up through high school, unless you're homeschooled and you know your parent doesn't know anything about teaching, your teachers have a teaching background, which makes a huge difference. So we learned about questioning strategy, information processing, things that changed my life forever. And that's when I rediscovered the joy of learning. And then I went back and did my PhD in materials engineering because I realized there's still a lot of stuff I wanted to learn. So often we get tied up into fear of failure and girls in particular, we, we don't want to fail. We want to get it right. And if we're not perfect, 
we're more likely to change majors or give up and just say it's too hard. All this problem solving kind of helped me get through this really difficult point sophomore year at Purdue where I got my first D ever in physics. And I had to figure out if I had what it took to stay in engineering. And it was all my creative hobbies that I did as a kid that gave me the confidence to know that I'm creative. I can. I wasn't thinking solving problems. I was thinking I'm creative. I can. I can learn this. Engineering's just another media. You know, acrylics is one. Sewing's one. Engineering, mechanical engineering, that's just another media. I. I can learn it. More recently, GE Aviation has had this fantastic relationship with Girl Scouts of Western Ohio. Um, where we've done after-school programs, we've led STEM experiments for them. We started a STEM summer camp and on to the regular summer camp beginning in 2006. And I've led experiments for that, designed and developed experiments. So some of the books I write about, those are experiments I've led with girls at Girl Scouts. And I found it extremely rewarding that being able to give back to girls and help show them that you you can be creative. You can design things. You can problem solve things right now in middle school, wherever you are. I've worked with K through eight um, through STEM summer camp. And I've learned that if you get the right experiment and you get them questioning and thinking like, why do some things float and others don't? And you can pose that as a question and do some hypothesis testing and let them splash around some water and try to figure out if it's size, if it's weight. No, it's density. What density? When I was taking algebra, it was, you know, word problems. And, you know, it's like, it was like, okay, it's, it was hard. Once I got it, it was fun, but I really didn't see the relevance of it. And that's one thing I've seen with kids and working with Greater Cincinnati STEM Collaborative that many kids don't consider STEM careers because they lack confidence in their own math skills. So that's a special passion of mine as an engineer. Using math for fun on a daily basis is to try to have fun, realistic design projects to build problem-solving skills. And by the way, just show the kids that math is relevant. And this is something, it's fun and you want to learn it. It's magical. It's not a pain in the butt. It's It should be something that lets you soar and do something you never imagined possible. You talk a lot about problem solving, failure, seeing the design, you know, this creation that, you, that you've designed. And it's magical because you see it through the process of learning. You're enjoying the experience of learning. And it's not necessarily about we have to just get this project done in by next week because that's what the curriculum tells us to do. And when you mention kids, especially girls, dropping off and dropping out of the STEM areas because they don't know if they can be successful, you know, and and so as you're talking about these things, my mind automatically goes to, because like I said, I have two children. Actually, my old, my son is a senior. He's in a physics class right now, and they're currently building a suspension bridge. And it doesn't seem like he is enjoying the process of it for many, many reasons. The teacher's doing the very best that they can with the time that they have, but we're also in the middle. Well, I don't know if it's even the middle anymore. We're in a pandemic where 
my children just went back to in-person learning yesterday. And so how do we cross that bridge, no pun intended, with a pandemic? You have children in the classroom, you have children out of the classroom, they're all over the place. And it's when you're talking about learning how to learn and design process, how do teachers make time to do all these things with kids? Well, I can't speak as a teacher. I I know they have tight uh, schedules and curriculum objectives they have to teach to. So some things are kind of mapped out for them. One of the things I've learned, especially, you know, okay, STEM summer camp, Girl Scouts, we were getting K through eight and some girls hyperactive. It's like you just couldn't get their attention. And so sometimes you just kind of have to roll with it and take what you can get. But through this journey, I've also been introduced to the term social emotional learning, which is kind of <clears throat> meeting the, the students where they are. So bringing in some fun props. And I like to phrase things as a question. And, you know, so I came up with this great poster, Why Do Some Things Float and Others Don't? And that's in book two. It's also on my website. And when you think about it, here's this big, you know, cruise ship and it's floating. And here's a submarine that can control its buoyancy and it can sink or float on demand. And here's somebody in a kayak paddling along. And then here's this wreck at the bottom of the ocean. So when you think of an interesting way to pose a problem that maybe gets their imagination, like, oh, I had adults come up to me and say, you know, I never thought of it like that. I just, I never thought of why do some things float and some things don't. I structured it with hypothesis testing so that there were a couple of experiments that we could do easily and disprove. You know, we could test, is, is it weight? We could test, is it size? And when you start ruling those things out and you start wondering, well, what's really the right term? And I guide them to density and then we do some experiments to validate that. And the the school visit that I did that went extremely well, I kicked it off with, you know, whether you want to invent or create something new, help people live better lives, or win a gold medal at the Olympics, learning problem-solving skills can help you achieve your goals. So if you can make it relevant to the kids and tell them, okay, what what are your goals? What do you think you want to do? This is how this is going to help you. So if you can make it relevant to them, okay, that helps get their attention. If you have an activity that is not pure lecture dump, pound as much material as you can into this four-hour lecture instead of selectively picking out the pieces that you really need them to learn. And, And most teachers know this. They have to make hard decisions. I think it still doesn't hurt to remind especially non-professionals, check the motivation, give the kids the opportunity to process information. So ask questions. The simple problem-solving model that I use that is very effective in training dogs is, is, is three parts. You define the problem, so you define your objective, and you, and you frame it as a question somehow. You, you decide, okay, if it's, if it's teaching my Golden retriever, how do we backwards through my legs? What's the first skill he has to learn? I've got to have something that I can reward him with when he makes a good decision because he doesn't know English. 
okay, but I'm, I'm setting up a problem. I want him to do something, but I have to let him make a choice. And when he makes a good decision, then I reinforce that choice. And the key thing with this strategy is wrong is wonderful because he's going to learn a whole lot faster if he makes a wrong choice and he doesn't get the cookie. So I think in the classroom setting, the hard thing with problem solving skills with kids is how do you give them a meaningful problem to solve where they can actually fail? GPS is kind of like that. When I follow directions with GPS, I don't really learn the route. I don't need to. I've got my GPS telling me, turn right in 50 feet. And I think that's the challenge with problem solving skills is finding enough diversity in the solutions and and letting the kids know that your number one objective isn't to get the perfect solution here. Your number one objective is to think through the process and come up with your own solution. And everybody's optimum solution for a specific problem may be different because your objectives may be a little bit different. And that's what I love about the design process. If you leave the objective open enough that you can come up with different designs, then you have the fun of seeing what different people come up with. And it's it's not that there's one solution, it's what what do you like the best? And then what does somebody else do? Do you see a different perspective, something you want to try next time? And you start learning that, yeah, all those wrong turns you make, you're learning from it. You were talking about the process of learning, problem solving, and a professional educational setting with educators versus possibly a home setting, whether it's a homeschool parent or parents or family members or parents helping their students at the end of the day with homework, uh, STEM homework. And so do you, do you think that part of the problem arises with those environments is that the homeschool parent, family members, parents of, of children that are in public school when the kids come home and say, oh, I have this project, don't feel confident in their abilities? You know, our generation of parents where, you know, you gave you gave the example of the cruise ship and the submarine and figuring out the problem of how this floats and all that. Well, if I don't feel confident in my abilities to figure that out, I might be a little scared or intimidated to pose that question to my middle school or high schooler because I may feel like I'm going to fail. And so do you see that as something that might be getting in the way sometimes is the, the older generation not feeling confident enough in their abilities so they don't feel they can help their children grow? Definitely. Definitely. the Your own limitations make it scary for you to let go and let your kids fail because you don't know how to guide them. And you think that you do have to guide them what you can do. There are some good resources out there. I've got many on my website. I've been working really hard, especially when COVID hit. I really focused on trying to get stuff up on my website that could support homeschool parents and teachers with some unique experiments that I've, that I've developed myself. So you can look for those materials. There are other websites. One of the public broadcasting stations has a lot of STEM experiments too. So if you just search out there, you you need to see um, experiments that have the videos and that can guide you. But more than that, I would say my advice is focus on what can you reward? What can you reinforce? 
and focus on you're going to learn. And it doesn't matter if you get it right perfectly, but just to try something and get out of your comfort zone, change the focus on from the perfect outcome to the learning process and the problem solving process and tell them, hey, you've learned something valuable. This didn't work. So what might you do next time? So come up with a questioning strategy, figure out with dog training, you always want to end on a positive note so that you're both eager to go back at it the next day. So find something positive that you can say. And I will say this between parents and teachers, parents, even if you don't have a teaching background, you don't have to manage as many kids as a teacher does. And classroom dynamics, when you have 20 to 40 kids in the advanced courses, we had class sizes as large as 60, which was just, you know, you kind of had the mob mentality then. So it was really hard to get that one-on-one interaction. So there are strategies, um, cooperative learning groups, where you break them down into small groups and have them work on a project together. And if somebody's got an idea and they know what they're doing, they can take the leadership a bit. They can, the kids themselves can mentor the kids that are struggling a bit. So, and it gives more people time to ask questions and participate than just sitting in a big class. Although I still think individual projects are phenomenally powerful because that's when you build your self-confidence. If it's always a team, then chances are there's somebody that's pulling a lot of the weight and it's easier for somebody else just to say, oh, well, I can't do it on my own. Yeah. Do you think that some, you know, you're talking about individual projects and students learning and doing project-based learning where they're not just sitting and listening to a lecture and, you know, and I get that teachers sometimes feel like they have to cram all this information in because if they just don't do it, the kids are not going to be able to get to the next class and whatever. Do you feel that with the project-based learning that it's really important for, and I, and I understand I'm, you know, a prior teacher and administrator, and I understand that there is policy and procedure and all these things with grading and we have to, you know, the whole grading scale and whatever. Do you feel that sometimes that that's what makes kids sort of either fail or veer away from? Because don't you, do you feel that it would be great if kids could just do projects without that looming over their head, the grading system, and they have to get this grade or that grade, and they're really scared of what they're going to get on their project. So they're maybe not as open to just experimenting and being okay with failure. Like it's okay to fail. You know, you, the reason that I'm asking this is because you just said, you know, you made a comment at the end that said, uh, end on a positive note. And I think that's really powerful for kids that are in the public school system, whether it's middle or high school, it's hard to end on a positive note when you've just gotten a D on a project that you felt you really did well at and you've built this creation and it it's not going to be a positive note when you bring the grade home. And so do you think that sometimes we're a little too caught up in that and we scare kids off of it? Okay, so I, I don't have the current background on how teachers are grading. I, I just downloaded this fantastic project from Teachers Pay Teachers that was a friend's experiment that was his bestseller. And I was looking through it and they had a rubric. And I think I really liked some of the 
questions that were laid out in that rubric where they were looking at not just the end results, but they were looking at, does the student show an understanding of this? So it wasn't just grading on the outcome, but looking at the write-up and whether the, the student understood the principles and what they considered in their design process. So I think if you get into project-based learning, my impression is having a good rubric can be life or death, you know, make or break to having, to seeing the value in a project that maybe didn't look as great as the star pupils result, but at least acknowledges the creativity that they showed and the thought that they went into it, that, you know, it's the partial credit thing. It's like, okay, recognizing that you don't want everything to look the same. When you can really tie it back to something that you understand, that's more important than what does the final project look like. And sometimes we have to give the parents permission to let their kids fail or not be perfect and accept that, hey, you tried really hard. And this is really original work that you did. That's fantastic. That was a great question. So it's not just the project outcome, how pretty is it, but what did you learn by doing it? And what would you do differently? What stumbling blocks did you run across? And what would you do for your next iteration if you had time? Yeah. And I, and I, and I think, and I agree with you on all of those points. I think that's wonderful advice and information to give our listeners. And I think that conversation piece can be so much more powerful than the end result. The conversation piece that students are able to come back and have a conversation with us, just with all of the points that you just made, if they can have an intelligent conversation with you and talk about what they think they did wrong, what they think they did right, what they would do differently next time. That's the learning process, the back and forth questioning and dialogue. And so I think it's so powerful that you bring that up. When we're looking at kids as young as preschool age, we have preschool age kids, you know, we have children that are starting school as early as age three, you know, we're going into kindergarten at age five. So we have this whole generation of, of students that are really starting their education at an early age. And so what do these types of STEM things look like for, for students that are extremely young and how important and how can we connect their playtime, because that's what the majority of students are doing at those ages, to these fields of STEM? The challenge when you get really, really young is, you know, the ages and stages. So you have some where they're just at different cognitive stages of development. So they might not understand principles of conservation of mass that you pour some water from one beaker, one shape into another, and it's the same amount. You know, at a certain age, they think that's magic. For me, I remember things like playing with Tinker Toys, and I guess Legos is going to be the equivalent now. And if you let them build things and play with things and discover how things move, and by the way, you can do a whole lot with cardboard, strips of cardboard, and those brass fasteners. You can make hinges. You can make mechanisms with that. You can learn about structures. Just, I think, working with your hands is incredibly valuable. In fact, Stuart Brown and his He's got a book on play, but he talks about 
um, one of the big companies out in California found out that the engineers they hired, if they didn't have a certain amount of hands-on tinkering experience, you know, in their background as a kid, if, if they just went to college as an engineer and did nothing but theoretical, they were not as effective at solving problems because they didn't have the hand-mind connection. They couldn't visualize how things went together and they didn't have the experience with, you know, what are the problems for assembly and disassembly? So, you know, for, so that very early, you know, preschool to kindergarten, I would say, just get them hands-on. My father was a woodworker and, you know, that was his hobby. I, I didn't get into woodworking, but I would watch him make things and I would design things with them. And he'd tell me like, okay, Marsha, we, I need to be able to find a way to, you know, fasten this part of your desk to this part of your desk. And by the way, we also have to get it through the door. So it's got to be able to be assembled and disassembled. So you learn some of those things. I did a lot of sewing. So, you know, you don't have to be a bicycle mechanic to be an engineer. I did a lot of sewing of doll clothes. Small things like that are wonderful because you learn, you know, it doesn't matter whether you're sewing for a Barbie doll or an adult, you know, a sleeve has the same piece has a similar shape to it. So you've got a bodice front, a bodice back, a sleeve, pants. You learn how all those things go together. I learned project management. I learned how to lay out fabric efficiently. I learned how to set up my sewing machine so that my scissors and my seam ripper were close by and my screwdriver to change the needle. You know, so you learn all these industrial engineering concepts just through hobbies and for me, that is what I would really encourage more than anything else is to let your kids have fun and play and have the joy of figuring out what excites them and, and let them learn problem solving skills through their own hobbies because problem solving skills are the hardest thing to learn, the hardest thing to teach, but they're also more transferable across disciplines than facts and concepts and generalizations, which are very specific to a body of knowledge. So if you have a kid who's using their imagination and play and building stuff and designing their own things, they're going to learn so much that is going to give them a head start in life, no matter what career they pursue. I didn't have a clue what I was going to do in elementary school. It's it's too early to commit to any field. But what I want to do is help kids become creative problem solvers. I want to empower the engineer in everyone and show them that whether you realize it or not, you're an engineer. You may not be a mechanical engineer, but you're an engineer. You're a problem solver. You don't have to be an engineer to be a problem solver. But if you are a problem solver, it will build your confidence, your self-confidence, and give you the feeling that, hey, I can take on something hard because I've solved hard problems before. I can do this. I just have to learn a new medium. Yeah. And I think just the finding the problem solver within yourself, like you're saying, is so important. And, and STEM, as you're talking and you're telling your stories and you're giving these examples 
you know, what, what I want to, what I'm taking from this conversation, what I'm learning from you is, you know, STEM touches virtually every aspect of life in some way, shape or form. So whether your child is a student athlete or involved in band or involved in, you know, the math club or whatever area of life they're in, there's going to be a connection there. There's going to be problems that need to be solved. And so I think that what you're doing is so powerful. And I think that all of the resources that you have available are just incredible. I am thrilled um, to, to hear that you are starting a little bit of stuff on Teachers Pay Teachers. So can you please tell our listeners as we wrap up, Marsha, where they can find all of your resources and where they can find you if they want to contact you um, about STEM-related issues? My website is putneydesigns.com, P-U-T-N-E-Y designs.com. So, and from there, you can scroll down to the bottom of any page. There's a get in touch section where you can enter your your email and your you know a subject and you know type a note and those all go to me so I see everything that goes into that form and I'm happy to reply back I'm I'm happy to uh, engage with you via email Um, we can even do a zoom call if if you have a special need I do offer class visits virtual or in person in the greater Cincinnati and Hilton Head areas so I have to be in town. So I, I can do that. I also have on my website under the books menu, a link to all my books. They're available on Amazon. You can do them special orders through Barnes and Nobles. Or if you if you want to order a bunch for your, for your class, I can get you a discount. So you can contact me directly for discount prices and I can have them shipped directly to you. There's a STEM menu, and there's also a Putney Projects menu item on my website. So the STEM has the projects from the book and additional projects. Um, So there's a lot of information there. On Teachers Pay Teachers, my storefront name is Putney Designs, and I just literally signed up today and loaded my first experiment, which is the the free one. So it's the project worksheets uh, from book one. Also, please, please, please sign up to my newsletter. You get access to a lot of special STEM resources just by signing up. So, and there's a, you can look under the home menu of Putney's Gift, but if you go to the home page, you'll get a pop-up that will give you an opportunity to subscribe. Working to really build some powerful resources for teachers that, you know, maybe haven't seen the engineering perspective of a STEM topic. Yeah. Well, and I, and, and for all of our listeners, I will include, as we always do with our Classroom Matters podcast, we will include all of Marsha's links, all of her information so that you're, you know, if you're listening to this while you're driving or doing something where you're not able to write this down, we definitely will have that available for you. And I can promise you, as I was telling Marsha earlier, I've spent, uh, been on her website a couple of different times and being the mom of two public school kids and one homeschool kid there, I just, I, I can't wait to go back. There are so many cool experiments 
Independence. There are so many really great things um, to look at, to, to pull from, things that you would never even think of that you can do with your kids. So I, I am really excited about the Teachers Pay Teachers thing. I know that's going to be wonderful resource for everyone. But Marsha, thank you so much for not only being a guest today on the podcast, but just the work that you're doing because it really truly is. You know, we know STEM is important, but I think that the way that you come at STEM makes it relatable, it makes it more powerful, it makes it much more understandable, and it makes it more, you know, like I can do it. I feel like as a mom and as a parent and as a former educator, I can do this. And I really hope that that's what everyone else is getting from it. So I just, I, I think that what you're doing is really out of this world. Um, and so thank you so much for, for spending, I know you're very busy spending your time with us today. It's been my pleasure. I've really enjoyed speaking with you. And I hope that your audience uh, takes the time to check me out on the website, check out the books and check out Teachers Pay Teachers. And if you sign up for my newsletter, rest assured, I'll let you know as soon as there's a new experiment out on Teachers Pay Teachers, as soon as I get that next set of curriculum objectives done. And who knows, you might get some freebies where you can be my guinea pig to help me fine tune my experiments. Yes, I'm in. Well, Thank you again, and this is Christy Houle signing off for this episode of Classroom Matters. And don't forget, we have hundreds of STEM-related video resources on the Educate.today website.